is the song over? Did it end? Yeah, I knew it ended. Um, hi, everybody. It's me, your host, Jonathan Baker. Just sitting out here on my porch enjoying a glass of Country Time Lemonade. <laughs> I kid. Uh, I am in the South, though, and this is my podcast, Too Lazy to Write. Thanks for listening. I got a good one for you today. I know you've waited patiently, and uh, I'm glad you did, because it's worth it. Uh, I mean, before I even begin, I'm going to apologize for the sound, because as you know, I always have trouble with the sound, but uh, today I've got a treat. It is a real treat for me to, to have talked to these two people. I had talked to two people at once. Uh, we did it over the phone. I was able to link up the calls and everything, and I'm not even going to bother to try to go into an imitation of this woman's father, because I wouldn't do it justice, and it's been done a thousand times before by people much better than I am, uh, than I, rather. But today, uh, and I'm calling it my father, this is, I'm teasing it, this is what, this is what we in the radio biz would have called teasing. You gotta tease it, man. So, um, today... I am calling this my Father's Day show because uh, one of the two people I interviewed, the woman who I interviewed, spoke so uh, lovingly and favorably about her father and um, really in ways that we, the public, would not have known him. So who am I talking about? Well, well, if you read my Facebook post, you know. Uh, the other day, yesterday... I had the pleasure of speaking with, uh, direct from her home, uh, I'm really teasing it, huh? (laughs) I had the pleasure of speaking with Anne Serling, uh, author of uh, the book, As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling. And of course, Rod Serling, as we all know, is the, uh, was the creator of The Twilight Zone, amongst many other things. He, he, he did a lot, as we're going to find out. I also spoke with, at the same time, Anne's friend and an author of many things, not just of books, but uh, newspaper columns, etc., etc. I'm babbling here. I'm not even doing him justice, so go check him out on online. But his name is um, Mark, and God forgive me, Mark, I should have asked you how you pronounce it, Mark Dawidziak, D-A-W-I-D-Z-I-A-K. He is the author of Everything I Need to Know, I, Everything I Need to Know, I Learned in the Twilight Zone. And uh, he, he really did. If you talk, if we, you'll find out when you listen to him. So uh, I got Anne, Rod's daughter. I got Mark, an author and uh, an essayist and columnist and lecturer and actor and uh, teacher, professor, and me. A guy with a microphone, but boy, oh boy, was it exciting to talk to them. So enjoy it, and uh, yeah, I do. I really hope you like it because I had a great time doing it. Bye bye, or not bye bye. You know what I mean. Listen. Oh, okay. This is amazing to me. I'm first of all, I have to start out by thanking both of you for agreeing to do this. This has been a subject that I have wanted to talk to talk about rather for so very long, and to have the two of you on is just beyond words. So thank you so much. Thank you, John, and thank you for your patience. I know I've kept you hanging for some time. Well, you're both extremely busy people, so I understand. I completely understand. I'm not going to argue with that one. Um, I don't know who to begin with, though. I don't know if I talk to the daughter of the creator who's written a book about the, the, that relationship or the man who's written books about not just Twilight Zone but Columbo and, and Kolachak, and I've done my Wikipedia research. <laughs> so actually, I'm going to ask Anne off the top, what, what was it like growing up in that household? Well, it was entirely different than people imagine. You know, I, I, as I started my book, he was nothing like that dark image walking across the um, soundstage. He was, uh, my dad was so funny and warm and um, not this foreboding, dark character that people would think. Right. You obviously saw him as, as a father first and then this other person second, I imagine. Really, uh, more, as, more as a dad. I, I wasn't really all that tuned in to what my father did for a living um, for a very long time, which is in part why I wrote the book. I, I knew he was a writer. He was a writer. Um, I, I had friends whose dads were writers, and so that was the norm. Um, 
but uh, it, it actually wasn't until I was probably seven or eight and a kid at school on the playground asked me if I was something out of the Twilight Zone. Oh. <laughs> I didn't have a clue what that meant, and I went home and I asked my father, and he explained at that point that he wrote for this series called The Twilight Zone, and he said it was a little too old for me. Um, but it really wasn't until after he died that I even watched that many of the Twilight Zones. Or, you know, there were other things. For instance, he wrote a story called The Storm in Summer, and and, and um, I was tuned into the Night Gallery, too. But, you know, the, the Twilight Zones, I, I hadn't really watched that many until after he died. And that, and that was really more to see him than the actual story initially. Interesting, interesting. And, Mark, what brought you to the Twilight Zone world? Oh, I was about 10 years old uh, when the Twilight Zone started to be rerun. I was a little young for it in its, its first incarnation. Uh, it went off the air, and it was just immediately repeated constantly in the New York area where I grew up. And uh, the good old WPIX channel, and uh, you had constant access to it. And it hit me right at the right time. Uh, I, I had seen my first kind of horror films at that point, so I was drawn to it for the same reason most people are drawn to the Twilight Zone at first and at that age, it was for that wonderful creep-out factor, mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that feeling that makes the, the, the hairs on the back of your neck go up. Uh, it was, it, it was, you wanted to have that experience over and over again. It was a very addictive series that way. And then uh, it's one of those shows you can carry with you through your entire life because as you get older, you know, when I was in my teen years and, and watching it, I kind of started to sense, well, you know, there's something behind all of this, 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 this kind of creep out stuff. There's, there's something more here going on here. Right. And as you get older, you become more and more in tune with the social messages and uh, the, prof the profundity that is laced around the Twilight Zone. And you really start to realize that these are morality tales, that these are parables for our time. Yeah. And like the greatest of parables, they are timeless. So and it, I carry this through my entire life. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because I did want to ask um, both of you that you said they're parables and they, they're timeless. We're now in, I, it's either the third or fourth reboot of the series. I, I, I think I've lost track. It's and I, third, yeah. It's the third, right? Why, why are we, why, I mean, and I don't mean this in any way as a slight, but why do people, why do we still care about the Twilight Zone? Well, my my answer to that would be because my dad, you know, did write these moral stories and that were dealing with things that are still so sadly relevant and prevalent today, like, you know, racism and, um, you know, mob mentality and isolation and all of mm -hmm. that. And while people change or, time, you know, times change, people really don't. And, you know, he dealt with the human condition and the... Here we are in these really drastic times. Yeah. There were some that were so downright tragic and um, and heartbreaking. And then there were others. I think of the one with Buster Keaton, um, where there's like, it's purely comical. Oh, sure. The, the, the Twilight Zone hit a lot of different chords. Um, and, and, and like most shows did back then, because if you watch even a show which is not like Bonanza at all. I like Twilight Zone, Bonanza. Bonanza did a different type of show every week. They did a romance one week. They did an action show the next week. They did a, a comedy the next week. Uh, they did something which was socially conscious the next week. Uh, you, you can't hit the same chord every week. Right. So Twilight Zone, it's almost like great jazz. It's, um, it, you, know, you, you see this great innovation within a few notes. Uh, and it's always the Twilight Zone, which is yeah. its own indefinable thing. And I mean, the closest anybody ever came to defining the Twilight Zone was Rod Serling in his introduction when he said it was as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. But when you try to really pin down what the Twilight Zone is, it gets tricky. You know, yeah. it, is it a horror show? No, not really. Is it science fiction? Sometimes, maybe a little bit. Was it fantasy? Yeah, it reaches sort of fantasy. Was it all of that? Was it none of that? It was the Twilight Zone. It's the best way to define it. Now, Anne, how does that make you feel when you hear Mark's description of that? Well, I, was just, I, I loved what you just said, Mark. It was like great jazz. That's, that's lovely. I, um, mm -hmm. 
You know, and it's interesting. Um, I hear from so many people who, who not only still connect with the show, but tell me of the personal relationship they feel they had with my father, that, um, and many that had tumultuous childhoods that escaped by watching The Twilight Zone, and, and young Mark, like you, 10 years old. And um, that's been incredibly touching to hear, you know, how they related to my father as, as their own. Well, yeah, it was, I mean, it was escapism and in a very um, different way, I guess, from maybe what people were seeing at the time. Well, it was escapism that, and and this is, you know, sometimes, um, you know, a lot of, this is not new to me or original to me, few things are, but um, <laughs> I, I, I've heard science fiction writers and fantasy writers and horror writers say that, you know, a lot of people almost stop short when they come into the they, they they use these fandoms as escapism which is good they're almost like life rafts at a certain time of life where you are attracted to like things and it's something you can share with other people um but the challenge of all of these things is to carry it on and then to face what all of these things address which because all of these are great metaphoric storytelling uh, all of mm-hmm. these things are and if you look at what's behind them the challenge of all these things is not only to use them as escapism, but then to deal with the real-life issues that all of these things are talking about. Stephen King, when he writes about horror, he's writing really what, the, what, what are the real monsters? What are behind those stories? What yeah. is really threatening us? Um, so you know, it's your obligation you know, as somebody uh, drawing air on this planet and using natural resources. It's your obligation to address the real world. Uh, because that's what these fantasy things are doing. They're giving you tools in order to address the real world. And the Twilight Zone did that magnificently week in, week out. And that's why we're so – I go back to your question why we're still talking about it. A lot of those Twilight Zone episodes are more resonant now than the, the day they aired. That's, yeah. That's and, that's, and that's because Rod Serling, like most great writers, understood the human animal. He understood where it comes from. You know, it's always a magical, mystical thing of like, where does that come from? But if you look at the great writers from Shakespeare on through Dickens and Twain, and these, they were great observers of, of the human psychology. And they understood that human nature doesn't change. Why, why is Shakespeare still timely today? Even, you know, you're talking about somebody who was writing in the 1500s and the 1600s. Why, why are these stories still speaking to us now? Because they are insightful to the human condition right. and that so that, was an, that was an inner eye that rod serling had and he had an unerring eye for, <laughs> for the human frailty and the and the human strength as well you know there's a wonderful story there's a program in binghamton called the fifth dimension where all the fifth graders watch the twilight zone and they learn about you know all of these themes and the, they were watching um the monsters who do on maple street and the teacher asked who were the who were the who were the um, monsters? And uh-huh. she said the entire class stood up. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That now, do you? I know that your father you lived in. Did you live in Binghamton growing up? Is that? No, no. My my dad moved to Binghamton when he was three. From he was oh, born okay. in Jersey. And uh, we have a summer cottage in upstate New York, about an hour and a half away from Binghamton. So it was an annual pilgrimage my dad would take. He'd go back to the, his hometown and drive by his house and by the carousel. And um, just... I actually I remember seeing something a few months ago on uh, CBS this morning where they went back to Binghamton and, and showed that uh, the carousel. Right, right. Yeah. So. Um, oh, no, go ahead, sorry. His hometown was incredibly important to him. There is a quote where he said, no matter what else I've lost, I'll always have a hometown. He just sounds like he was, like you said earlier, not the man that everybody knew from the show. He could. He was just so remotely different from that that it's, um, it's, in, it's very interesting. Just. So, so outside of writing, which he was so prolific, um, what were what would a typical day be like in the Serling household then? 
Well, my dad would get up very early. Initially, he had an office in the downstairs of our house, and then he they built an office in the backyard. So um, he'd go out there, and then he would drive over to the studio and uh, be there for some of the tapings. And um, he wrote 92 of the 156 episodes of The Twilight Zone. So, yes, so prolific. And I often think, John how much more prolific he'd be today, not only with, you know, censorship not being what it was then, but also having a computer. I mean, he yeah. Was, you know, he was a whiz on the typewriter, and then he used the dictabel. But uh, a computer would have been, and he typed, by the way, with two fingers. So. Oh, really? Yeah. And he did have his share of run-ins with, regarding censorship. Yeah, it was pretty Stunning when you think about that and, you know, things like the Chrysler building was showing and, and the sponsor was Ford, so they had to yeah. black it out. And, I mean, just incredible things. Well, one that I, I just had read, it was a um, it was in Requiem for a Heavyweight where he said, got a light? Yeah. Or got a match, sorry, and a lighter company was the sponsor? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, um, yeah, unbelievable. But let's let's stop for a second yeah. and say, well, thank goodness for that, because if it hadn't been for that kind of interference, we wouldn't have gotten the Twilight Zone. Right. So Rod Serling's career would have gone on and in a, in a, in a different trajectory. I think he would have gone on to have done brilliant things, but there wouldn't have been a need for the Twilight Zone uh, yeah. if it hadn't been for that interference. So sometimes bad things produce good results. But what what you were saying before about the, the parables always they're, they're very much timeless. Um, but was the Twilight Zone's creation and its initial and its success sort of reflective of the times that the we that we I'm I'm not uh, I'm I wasn't listening to that people were living in back back then. It was you know the threat of of communism the the. The idea that you know aliens are watching us—like, was it a product of the times? Well, of course, it was. One of, yeah, and one Go of ahead. his quotes—one of his quotes was that an alien could say what a Democrat or a Republican couldn't, and and he did feel that it was so important to get these messages out. So. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no. I was, I, I was just going to say that you know, it was very much of its time because it had to be. You, you can't write a sonnet without being influenced by your time. Mm-hmm. Any writer is going to be influenced by by the time. But this also goes back to you know what we were talking about before is that you know if you read writers from different times and sometimes different centuries, the writing seems dated. Uh, because they're not, it, it, it's always going to be of its time, but sometimes it gets trapped by its time. And you read, it, it, it's like it's very tough reading some British writers from the 1800s because it seems like such an alien world, but almost an alien language to us. Yeah. And there's writing that still is as crisp today as it was when the day it was written, and it speaks to us in that way. And that's what the Twilight Zone does. That's why it has continued to jump generation to generation. It's not just the theme. It's also how it was written. Is Rod Sterling's writing has got a uh, eternal uh, quality to it. And you don't see that in many writers. You don't see, you can sometimes see that the themes hold up very well with the writers, but the writing doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he spoke, uh, the, you know, he, he, he was very aware of the vernacular of how people talk. And he was very aware, again, of human nature. And you put those things together, and that is a powerful combination. And it will last a long time. And by the way, he didn't set out to be a writer. He, he wanted to work with kids. His, his goal was that he'd go to college and he'd teach phys ed to kids because he liked working with kids. But the war, as he said, put an end to that. Um, and, and like so many, he was completely broken by the war and, and suffered uh, PTSD all his life. I, I vividly remember him having nightmares, and when I would ask him in the morning what had happened, he, he would tell me that he had been dreaming that the enemy was coming at him. So, And, of course, back then they didn't have well, – they weren't even aware of post-traumatic stress. It was shell shock or something. But there wasn't treatment or awareness or, I think, a real sensitivity that was so necessary. 
Unbelievable. And and I imagine that some of these, well, I imagine that those dreams probably ended up on the page in some way. Oh, absolutely. Purple Testament. And, and he also said that he told a writing class once that he had a propensity to write about the past. And I think, um, Mark, to what you were saying about how this is sort of everlasting, is I, I think some of those were so relatable, like walking distance. And this is certainly, you know, what my father did when he went back to Binghamton, you know, it was, it was literally walk, the walking distance script in many ways. So seeing his parents, seeing himself as a child, um, even, even the dialogue that he, that he has with his father talking to him that, you know, you've been looking behind you, try looking ahead. Is it really so bad where you're from? And um, it was sort of the conversation I really believe my father wanted to have with his dad who died when he was overseas at 52. Wow, this is all just so wonderful, or not wonderful, I mean, it's so interesting to hear um, about about his chi- his childhood or his, his life before and uh, and the life that he he lived as a father and as a, as a TV icon. Um, how did the two of you meet Mark and Anne? Anne, you want to take this one? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, I was... Uh, doing a book, I had come up with the idea for the book. Uh, everything I need to know, I learned in the Twilight Zone. Um, you know, the the, the short the, this is going to be the short answer because the long answer is that I, I was probably you know thirty years on a road to meeting Anne because I wanted to write a history of the Twilight Zone in the early eighties. Okay. And uh, Mark Scott the creep beat me to it and uh, did such a good job with it. I I couldn't even be angry about it. But all those years. I always thought I was owed a Twilight Zone book. And the universe decided that that was true. And it moved me towards the Twilight Zone. I did not. It's like, if you think you're in charge, you know, of your life, if you really think you're in charge, you know, you sometimes you have to step back and realize how often you were pushed in the right direction by one thing or another. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I was gradually working my way back towards the Twilight Zone and didn't realize it. And it finally I got my Twilight Zone book when I shared the Twilight Zone with my daughter, who turned 15, and uh, we decided to watch every single episode of the Twilight Zone in order when she turned 15. And this turned into a running gag between us. I would, we would watch an episode, and I would shake a finger at her at the end saying, you just let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> and we, it, it, it became, you know, and I can run a, a running gag into the ground with the best of them. And But after, uh, you know, a couple of weeks of this, the penny dropped, and I realized, well, this is the book. What, what you're, this, is your, this is your book. Let this be a lesson to you. Um, and, you know, my agent agreed, and, uh, and, and my agent had uh, knew Anne and uh, put us in touch. And, and, uh, and Anne, at the time, was thinking about a, kind of a similar type of thought, uh, but I, I ended up driving to Bingham to, to, to Ithaca, uh, and, and that's how we met, and sort of explaining the process. And I just at that point said, you know, uh, if, if this is something you want to do, if this is something you, you, you want to do, it's yours. I'll, I'll bow out, you know, because this is, this is yours by, by inheritance. This is yours. Um, and I, 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 I don't know. I think that was maybe been the moment where uh, <laughs> we, we bonded. I don't know. I guess Anne would have to, to confirm that. But um, it, I, I guess, as the line says in Casablanca, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Absolutely. And then the second time we met in Willoughby. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. We met actually in Willoughby. I introduced my, my really? daughter to Anne. In, in, there's a little town called Willoughby. Wow, because the shores of Lake Erie, it's it's to the east of Cleveland, and every year they have a Stop at Willoughby festival. It's okay. A festival, and they show the episode Stop at Willoughby in a continuous loop at the city hall or the library. And uh, Anne came in as a guest that uh, uh, that summer, and uh, so yes, we, we actually she actually met my wife and daughter in Willoughby. <laughs> And did, was Willoughby just a random town he chose, or was there a, 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 desire, a reason behind this? I, I believe it was random. He would put a lot of different towns and and people, and uh, uh, all of his characters were based in some way on on people that he knew. So, and he talked about Taganic, and uh, so everything had a had a some kind of personal reference, I believe. 
Interesting. Do you just reference one of my favorite episodes? Um, and I, I was going to say this for later, but do either of you have one or two that really stand out as as favorites? And uh, what? Well, like my dad, I have a propensity to to live in the past. So certainly, walking distance. Uh, a night gallery episode showing down Tim Riley's bar was an absolutely beautiful script, very similar to Walking Distance. Um, Guest had revisited about the SS officer I thought was a very powerful episode. Um, in Praise of Pip was one that was probably the first Twilight Zone I watched after my dad died and was just stunned to find that He'd use some of the dialogue from a routine that he and I did. Who's your best oh. buddy? So it was it was quite moving, and um, to find him literally in the twilight zone again. Wow, wow! And Mark, do you have uh, one or two? Well, you know, this is going to be sound like heresy, <laughs> because um, my favorite thing that that Rod Sterling wrote uh, is not a twilight zone. Uh, it's Requiem for a Heavyweight. Sure. I, I think that it's such a great script. It's going to be a great script whenever it is it is portrayed. Uh, and I really think it's it, it's it's such a it, it is the you can see him you know growing in strength as a writer throughout the fifties. And I think for that period of his life, that was sort of the the, the culmination of all of everything coming together in just the right way. But in the Twilight Zone, my standard answer is that my answer changes depending on the day you ask me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what's my favorite. But among my favorites, uh, Monsters Are Doing Maple Street, because I do think it is one of the episodes which has grown in resonance. Um, and, and with that, The, Op- uh, the Obsolete Man with Burgess Meredith. Um, oh, sure. I really think that that one is a cautionary tale that just keeps getting stronger and stronger with each passing decade. So those two would be way up there. And then on a personal level, certainly walking distance uh, would be, would be very, very high on my list. And the sci-fi channel has taken it upon themselves every year on new year's day to run a marathon. So this is exposing it to a whole different generation. Well, I think it it it, it, it already was. I mean, I, I'm mm-hmm. thankful for the, the marathons that have been done on the Fourth of July and New Year's Day. Those are always wonderful to see. But you know, I get to test this. I actually get to to road test this every, twice a year because I teach at Kent State University, and I teach two classes. I get to play professor and have a good time, and they let me in the door to do this until they catch me. I'm going to keep doing it, and. Uh, but each semester, I, I road test what the kids um, are watching or, or what they know or, more in case, what they don't know, you know, because with each generation, something disappears. There were shows which we took for granted as rites of passage, like the Andy Griffith show. Everybody lived in Mayberry at one point in their life. Everybody called Mayberry their hometown. Well, sad to report, this is the first generation which doesn't know Mayberry anymore. They don't know Floyd. They don't know Barney. They don't know the residents of Mayberry. They don't even know where Mayberry is or what it is. So you've watched different things recede. Mm-hmm. And the Twilight Zone is one thing they still know. And they don't know it just iconically, like maybe they know Marilyn Monroe or James Dean mm-hmm. without ever having seen a film with them. They know the Twilight Zone. They know they know the gremlin on the wing. They know the broken glasses. They know the Twilight Zone. Sure. So this continues to jump generation to generation, uh, and I think it's one of only two black and white shows that 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 does and continue to do that. And the other is I Love Lucy. They're the only two, which I think are still there. And any anything to add? I'm sorry, what? Oh, I just wondered what you thought of that, and and and, and what Mark had said. Well, I, I, I think it's, first of all, I and I Mark knows this, I wish I'd had him as a professor. I, I think that would be a fascinating class. But, yeah, I agree. I, I um, it, It's interesting what what is preserved and what isn't. And Desi Arnaz actually was involved in, in the uh, Twilight Zone, the first Twilight Zone. So... Um, in what was he? I know he he would have been behind the scenes. In what way was he advising, or how did that work? 
it was, I'm trying to think exactly how this goes. It was his studio. Okay. CBS um, had bought uh, one the first script, and then they shelved it for a year, and I think it was the producer on the Desi Arnett show who was looking frantically for a good writer or good writers. And um, through, through Desi Arnaz, somehow it, was, it got launched. And Desi Arnaz was the first narrator, and, and that didn't work out too well. But do you have anything to add to that, Mark? I, I think I kind of botched that. <laughs> no, I, I, you, you, I, the, the sort of prototype for what the Twilight Zone is called the time element, which yeah. was a script that, that Rod had redone from a, an earlier script. And uh, if you look at the t time element, it's almost a road test for what the Twilight Zone is going to be. And it was done on the uh, uh, the, the Lucy Desi uh, Playhouse. Uh, uh, okay. And, and, and this was sort of a um, – it showed that it could be done. But, you know, it, 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 if I'm not mistaken, didn't they do the, the, the story about the making of Requiem for a Heavyweight in which your dad acted? Did, wasn't that on the, the, the Lucy Desi Playhouse too? It, um, I'm going to have to look that up. I, I, I can't remember. Yeah, I should know that, right? Or we, we've had, we're, uh, but, but whatever it was, there was a and, – and Desi was a, a TV visionary too. I mean, you know, he was – a lot of what we know of TV, and this is off subject, but I was just talking about this this morning with uh, – a mutual friend that, that and I have David being Cooley, the TV critic with fresh hair on NPR. And we were talking about, you know, uh, just what a great visionary Des Desi was. That, that was, it was a great time television. I mean, it was, uh, I don't want to break into those were the days, but boy, you know, yeah. you, it was the wild west and sure. everybody was sort of inventing their own rules and it allowed these great visionaries. And a lot of how television gets done today Desi, as a producer, came up with a lot of that stuff. So you, you had these great visionaries like Rod Serling and Desi Arnaz who, who, and Ernie Kovacs and people like that who were just looking at the possibilities of television and what it could do. Was it you had meant – oh, sorry, Anne, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and like my dad, they were pretty screwed by CBS as well. So. Well, yeah, so that, something's never changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, you said that Desi Arnaz was the first narrator. Was narrating something your father wanted to do, or did they ask him to do it? How did that evolve? Well, the story that I heard was they were going to ask Orson Welles, but then Orson Welles proved to be too expensive, and my father volunteered. This wasn't new to my dad. When he was in college, he worked at a radio station where he acted and directed um, all the scripts. So he, you know, he was a ham. There's just no doubt about that. Okay. So I, but I think he was quite nervous when he first started, which uh, is why the gritted teeth. Oh, okay. But my, my dad also owned Cayuga Productions. So, you know, this was entirely his baby. And now you, you talked about the gritted teeth and you talked earlier, Mark, about the gremlin on the plane these are things that are not just like part of um, pop culture. These are things that are regularly parodied in pop culture. How, do, how does that make you feel, Anne, to know that it, it lives on in a different way? Well, um, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, is that the one you just mentioned? Yeah. Yes, that was written by Richard Matheson. Um, okay. But uh, how does it make me feel? Oh, I'm, I'm um, uh, God, what are the words? I'm Flattered? Uh, yeah, I just yeah, and it's it's pretty miraculous to be able to hear my dad talk about all the time and to see him on television, and and I feel so incredibly fortunate in so many ways that I had this really wonderful dad. You know, not everybody gets that, so yeah. I'm gonna have to actually call this my Father's Day podcast. Then I'll put it up on the weekend. <laughs> Well, you, you know, let me step in on that note and just say this. Um, most of us, you know, who uh, a, 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 admire Rod Serling and claim him as a hero never got the opportunity to, to meet him. Um, and the closest, you know, we've ever had was that figure on the TV screen. And uh, one of the things I like about the figure on the TV screen, uh, if taken in totality, you can see glimpses of what Anne is talking about. 
every once in a while, Rod will wink at the camera or he'll do something a little antic uh, with, with a spot or he'll say something which is uh, a little self-deprecating. Uh, it's, 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 that, that you even some of the intros to, to the Night Gallery episodes. And so there are these glimpses. But then, mm-hmm. you know, the only way you're really, really, for us, going to get to know the real Rod Serling is to read Anne's book. And I, I encourage anybody with an interest in Rod Serling to track down and read Anne's book because there is the real Rod Serling. Um, that's where he lives again. That's where he comes as, as a three-dimensional, fully formed person. And it's the closest any of us are ever going to get to knowing who Rod Serling was, the real Rod Serling, wasn't feel like you're really getting to know the person behind that image that you're talking about. Uh, it's a wonderful gift to all Rod Serling fans and all Twilight Zone fans. Thank you, Mark. As, and your book is a gift as well, and I'm not just saying that gratuitously. It's... Well, <laughs> it, it was a gift to me. You know, my book, my book was, was it, it was one of the, I have to tell you something that uh, I don't know that I've ever said this before uh, in an interview. And I've been asked a lot of questions about that book, but uh, it is it's one of the most fun uh, jo- writing jobs I've ever had. Uh, I, I could not wait to get back to the keyboard to work on that book. I was stealing time from other things and some, you know, writing, it gets very onerous. It gets very, you know, oh, I, can't, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to go back to this. I couldn't wait to get back to the Twilight Zone uh, writing that book. You know, it was what, it, it's, a, it's about as much fun as you can have legally. <laughs> well, Anne's book is called As I Knew Him. That's correct, Anne? Yes. And I that's definitely. available. Sorry? Yeah, I was just giving you the subtitle. Yes. Which, sorry, I, yeah, I tripped over you on that. Yeah. So was, as I knew him, then the subtitle is? As I knew him, my dad read Sterling, yes. And then, Mark, yours is everything I... Need to know I learned need from to the know. Twilight I learned from the Twilight Zone. I learned and from I, the Twilight Zone. I learned, sorry, I, I, just two quick things I want to uh, mention or ask about was I, I actually remember the first time I watched the movie Planet of the Apes and the credits rolled and I saw Rod Serling's name, and I thought, well, that makes sense now. Um, and now I know it was adapted from a book, but but he he co-wrote that screenplay, correct? Well, he was the original writer brought on, um, and he wanted to stay very true to the book, but his vision was apparently going to be too expensive to produce, so they brought in, I think his name was Michael Wilson, another That's right. writer. But, but you do see... Um, you know, major glimpses of my dad in the writing. You're right, and and the iconic ending is my, is my father's. Oh, that was your dad. Yes. Yeah, and there, it's, I mean, that really makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it makes 100% sense. Um, I, I'm curious, in terms of science fiction, uh, in like in terms of the science fiction realm, did your father see himself? in that realm or does he just see himself as a writer telling stories that happen to be based some in science fiction and like mark was saying earlier some in in you know in in fantasy some in reality well he certainly liked science fiction um i don't think that he saw himself as an expert science uh science fiction writer i i'm sure that i i know he said there were certainly fiction writers than he was but he certainly holds a place in that pantheon right now, I would say. He does. Yeah. But I, I, I <laughs> you know, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Uh, so, you know, get ready for a rant. No, oh, no, go uh, ahead. This is great. <laughs> I love this. The notion of calling, labeling somebody, you know, one thing like a science fiction writer or a horror writer, you know, or a mystery writer is a very 20th century American conceit. We do this, you know, it's like if you just go to the century before, you know, as you said, Rod Serling has a, has a firm foot in the science fiction realm, and he is, and he should. Well, you could say the same thing about Robert Louis Stevenson in the horror realm because he wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He wrote The Body Snatcher. He wrote sure. some iconic horror. But nobody says horror writer Robert Louis Stevenson. Right. We don't define him by the fact that he had this immense imprint on one genre. 
we also think of him as an adventure writer with Treasure Island. Uh, we think of him for kidnap. We think of him as a poet. We think of him as an essayist. We would we wouldn't do this at any other point. Mm-hmm. We, this is something which is very in his lifetime. Poe was not considered a, a horror writer. You know, we did that. We did that in the 20th century. Poe just considered himself a writer, and in fact. Very little of what Poe actually wrote, 17 volumes, collected works, is horror and, 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 and thrillers. Mm-hmm. There's actually humor. The man wrote satire and humor, and you don't think of Poe as a humorist. But we do this with, with our writers. And I don't think, you know, I, I, if you look at the body of Rod Serling's work, yes, let us honor him for what he wrote in what we consider genre in, in, in horror, in science fiction, in fantasy. It's wonderfully profound work, but it's part of a much bigger fabric. It's part of a much bigger picture. And you're missing a lot if you just sort of hone in on that and say, this is, this is what he was. Yeah, and you go back to what, you know, why he became a writer. Um, you, you know, Anne said, you know, he didn't set out to be a writer, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the, the fact is nobody sits out to be a writer. Uh, that chooses you. You don't choose it. Uh, at some point, the universe taps you and says, you're a writer. And that moment was when what Rod was uh, in college in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And that was the moment when he realized he was a writer. He realized he was a writer. He was a writer. He just didn't realize it yet. Mm-hmm. And then he realized that he could work through uh, the pain and such with with this. This is how he became a writer. So, you know, we all do this in different ways as writers. We all write ourselves sane, as Eugene O'Neill said. We all use writing in in, in, in ways. And sometimes, you know, you, you you might use mystery to do that. You might use horror to do that. You might use a war story to do that. Um, but I, I hate that tag. I hate it when somebody puts something in front of somebody that says, you know, you know, Stephen King is ultimately going to live as a great American writer. Right now, everybody, the shorthand for Stephen King is what? Horror writer Stephen King. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. he does write an awful lot in horror. There's no denying the fact that he is a great horror writer. But if he's going to live, and I think he will, actually, um, then he's going to live because he is a great writer. And that's the common theme here. Rant over. Okay. So, and you know, look, you're, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to add that between 1950 and 1975, when he died, he wrote 252 scripts. So, yeah, I guess he was a, a writer. Yeah. <laughs> now, and and one other thing before I I say goodbye, and what politics aside, what would he think of the current climate in this country? can tell you unequivocally he would uh, be apoplectic and I use this word all the time in, in referencing that about what's happening mm-hmm. and I could go on but I'll stop there <laughs> well I'll add, I'll add something we, 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 we need Rod Sterling more than ever uh-huh. uh, if you look at what's happening today one of the reasons being that Rod was also one of the writers, you know, I do an entire talk where, as Ann knows, uh, I do an entire talk where I do comparisons between Mark Twain and Rod Serling. But one of the things, they have a lot in common. They they share a lot of DNA. But one of the things they have in common is they were both able to talk to the entire country and tell people, in essence, knock it off. Mm -hmm. And we take it from them. We would take it, you know, uh, I've been playing Mark Twain, actually portraying Mark Twain on stage for 40 years. This, my, this year marks 40 years. I just realized that the other day. Um, and, you know, and this, and this sounds like shameless name dropping, and I apologize, but there's no way to get to this to tell you this without adding this. Is that, you know, and Anne knows that, you know, Hal Holbrook has been a dear friend since the, the early 80s. And um, we were once talking, comparing notes about, uh, and I told him, I do an entire section when I play Mark Twain on politics and the insanity of politics and where things have, have, have gone. It's word for word, Mark Twain. Everybody always asks me afterwards, you know, did you make that up or did you add something for today? I said, no, it's, it's all 
100%. And I asked Hal about that. I said, you know, they get very, very quiet during the, that period when I do that, that section. And Hal said, the word you're looking for is chastened. I said, chastened? And he said, yeah. And he said, I have the same experience that when I do something in front of an audience, they get very quiet when you start to talk about the insanity that they're involved in right now. Mm-hmm. And he said, and think about this, Mark. He said, if we went out there and said the very same thing, they'd kill us. Yeah. But they'll take it from Mark Twain when they won't take it from anybody else. And they'll take it from Rod Serling when they won't take it from anybody else. Rod could talk to both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to this day, you know, you, 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 I, I have a lot of friends who are conservatives who, who love Rod Serling. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's kind of odd in a way. But it, because they hear the truth. Because these guys can speak the truth them not twist it not make it something their own not deal on false realities or you know or, or made up facts or whatever or alternate facts or however you want to do it to really yeah. give you the truth there's been only a few people we've ever entrusted that with in the history of the united states and that's something they have in common mark twain could do it and rod Serling could do it do not take that lightly well, I and, can't improve on that, Mark. Oh, no. <laughs> and I want to know, do you, will you ever grow tired of talking about your dad? Never. No. Never. Huh? You know, my dad floats across my mind every single day, you know, and, and writing my book, and it took me a long, long time to write that book, and I actually started a different one uh, after he died called In His Absence, but I hadn't even begun to deal with the grief. So it was it was a joy to write about him every day and be with him every day and um, no never. No, and you said you have a place in upstate New York. It's interesting. I'm so I'm in Virginia, but I talk about this. I say this all the time on my podcast, and people who listen are probably bored of it. But I I live in Virginia, but I am I'm from Canada. So when I drive home, I go through the towns through Ithaca or not Ithaca. I go through Binghamton. I go through Syracuse. So I know them quite well. So um, maybe our paths will cross one day. You should, come to, you should come to Serling's Fest this October. Yeah. Serling Fest October in Binghamton? In Binghamton, right. yeah. The, the gathering of the clan, if you will, yeah. I'm going to have to put that in my calendar. I, I can send you the info if you'd like, John. Please do. I would love to. Okay. Oh, I could tie it in with a family visit. I'll stop there and head home, and it'll be great. It'd be wonderful. <laughs> Um, I am going to thank both of you. I'm, there is so much more I could ask, but um, you've been so gracious with your time, and I do appreciate it so much. I'm going to mention the website um, and the books and where you can buy them, all of that in my in my piece I do afterwards. Um, so thank you, Mark, and thank you, Anne. This has been a true, true pleasure to talk to both of you. I really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks. thanks to both of you, too. Take care. No, you too. All the best. Take care. Bye. Bye. It was great, wasn't it? I was going to come back and say it was good, wasn't it? But no, no, no. It was great. They were great. Um, they had amazing, insightful stories to tell. Uh, both Mark and Anne were just phenomenal to, to talk to. And I really do hope that I can make it to Binghamton, New York in um, in October for Serling St- Fest 2019. Uh, it's the Twilight Zone. It's the 60th anniversary of that show. And um, if you're interested in going to uh serling fest 2019 and it's in binghamton new york it's taking place october 4th 5th and 6th 2019 uh there's a guest list you can go to rodserling.com and you'll find out uh well you'll see the flyer that's there and all the information or you know what you could you could bug me on my website too lazy to write.com or you can tweet at me at the real john baker and um you know what? I can send you the flyer because I got a copy of it. I'm looking right at it right now, uh, and that again, it's at the it's at um, uh, good Lord Binghamton, New York, Binghamton High School actually, in the Rod Serling High School of Fine Arts, located um, in Binghamton, New York. Um, and it's the Helen Foley Theater at the Rod Serling School of Fine Arts, Binghamton High School, 
Main Street, 31 Main Street, Binghamton, New York. Again, tickets on sale soon at rodserling.com. And um, it's going to be celebrating everything Twilight Zone. Uh, further to that, you can find um, both Anne and Mark on the World Wide Web. Anne is uh, annserling.com, uh, A-N-N-E-S-E-R-L-I-N-G.com. So you could reach um, Anne on Twitter, at Anne Serling at A-N-N-E-S-E-R-L-I-N-G. And, excuse me, you can meet, uh, meet, you can reach Mark on uh, Twitter at Mark Dewidziak, and it's Mark with a K, D-A-W-I-D-Z-I-A-K. Check them both out, and their books are available on Amazon. Um, Anne's got it on, on, uh, it's available on Apple, at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, IndieBound, Kensington Books, Kindle, Nook, Walmart, And Mark has written a myriad of books um, about not just The Twilight Zone, but uh, Night Stalker and about, uh, well, Night Stalker Kolchak, if you remember the TV show. He's written about Mark Twain. He has written a big book about film noir. He has acted as Mark Twain, as we discussed. So there you have it. Another one in the books. Uh, it's been too lazy to write. It's been uh, a pleasure talking to you. I really hope you enjoyed it. I have another interview set up um, for a week from now or two weeks from now, and I, I hope that works out. Um, anyway, thanks again for listening, and again, thanks to both Anne and Mark for being so gracious with their time. I'm going to talk to you later. Take care now, and uh, happy Father's Day. Bye. Too lazy to